Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Ooh. Society builders with your host, Dwayne Veron. Welcome to Society Builders. And thank you for joining the conversation for social transformation. In our last episode, we celebrated the victories of the past 25 years as Baha'i communities worldwide made significant advances in the process of community building. And we explored how this lays a foundation for the society building yet to come. I highlighted four specific areas where such gains have profoundly changed our community culture. First, in the cultivation of self-generative systems of learning, empowering communities to raise the resources they need from within their own communities. Second, in the rise of the neighborhood as a focus for community service. Third, in the fusion between believer and collaborator from wider society, collaborating together in building the vision of Baha'u'llah for humanity. And finally, in the rise of youth, now at the vanguard of our community life. These are truly massive victories, and they are victories that were hard won, resulting from considerable effort and sacrifice. And they are victories which were indispensable to paving the path to society building. But in the path to winning these great victories, mistakes were also made. And while nothing should overshadow our great victories, we should also have the strength of character to learn from our mistakes after all, learning from mistakes is a central feature of embracing a culture of learning. Now, we know we've made such mistakes because the Universal House of Justice tells us so. In their April 2021 message, they say, a commitment to learning also meant being prepared to make mistakes. And sometimes, of course, mistakes brought discomfort. Unsurprisingly, new methods and approaches were handled inexpertly at first because of a lack of experience. On occasion, a newly acquired capacity of one kind was lost as a community became absorbed in developing another. Having the best intentions is no guarantee against making missteps and moving past them requires both humility and detachment. When a community has remained determined to show forbearance and learn from mistakes that naturally occur, progress has never been out of reach. Now, on a personal level, I'm incredibly grateful for this guidance from the Universal House of Justice because it both recognizes that mistakes were made, but it also positions such mistakes within a larger context and a culture of learning. Clearly, we need to learn from our mistakes. But it's hard to learn if we don't even know what our mistakes were. I mean, let's pause here for a second. Looking back at the past 25 years, do you know what mistakes were made? And if we don't know what our mistakes were, well, it's inherently impossible for us to learn from them. And this is why I'm devoting this episode to exploring this theme. Coming to terms with our mistakes is not about bringing us down disempowering us, making us feel bad, or guilting us into apologizing or atoning for our mistakes. But mistakes do have consequences. In particular, people get hurt. 
So it's critical that we learn from our mistakes so that we don't continue hurting people going forward. So today's episode is all about how we can best learn from our mistakes. But it's also an invitation for those who have been hurt or somehow disillusioned from mistakes that were made over the past 25 years. And if you identify with that experience, my episode today is a special invitation for you to rejoin the fold, to rise above whatever it was that scarred you. Because an exciting new chapter is unfolding and the Baha'i community would truly benefit from your contributions to the society building initiatives yet to come. So today, we're going to explore some of the mistakes of our past with the hope that we can learn from our past to embrace our future. Now, I want to start this episode with a bit of a disclaimer. The thoughts I share in these podcasts reflect a purely personal perspective. I serve on no Baha'i institution. My views are not the official view of any Baha'i agency. We're together engaged in a personal conversation exploring these themes together. So please don't confuse my views as in any way reflecting an official representation. I have absolutely no authority here. So my views are simply one person's perspective. They're no more important than yours. Just keep my disclaimer in mind as we explore today's theme. You can agree or disagree with the views I share, and that's the way it should be. All I ask is that we together explore today's theme. As Baha'is, we often need to feel that our faith is perfect and capable of making mistakes. But this confuses the issue. Although our faith is perfect, our communities are not. Because at the end of the day, we're human and humans make mistakes. The Baha'i faith is not a spiritual art gallery. It's not a society for spiritually perfect people. Instead, it's a workshop. We come in as odd-shaped material under the care of a master craftsman, and little by little, day by day, a better form gradually emerges. But let us never confuse who we are. I've had friends who felt unworthy of joining the faith. They looked to their imperfections, and they felt that they could only join once they were more perfect. But this misses the point entirely, because as I said, we're not a spiritual art gallery, we're a spiritual workshop. We embrace the faith with all our imperfections and allow the teachings of Baha'u'llah to gradually shape us, little by little, day by day, into becoming a better version of ourselves. So we're a workshop, not an art gallery. Now, when we read our history, we're often shocked at some of the mistakes which our communities once made. Mistakes which reflected their lack of a deeper understanding of our faith. For example, in the early days of the faith in the United States, you had to go through a nine-lesson course before you were allowed to discover the word alawapa. I mean, that's something we take for granted today, but back then it was a secret word. Now we look back at this today and we laugh at those early believers. I mean, they just seem so silly. But they didn't know any better. Their knowledge of the faith was imperfect. But why should we be any different? 
our command of the faith is also imperfect, even if we have perfect guidance. Future generations will similarly look back at us and laugh at some of our imperfections. Now, the plans of the past 25 years represented a major paradigm shift for Baha'i community life, and we were all confronted by massive change, change for which we had little experience. So it's only natural that mistakes would characterize many of our attempts to come to terms with the new landscape. There's no shame in that. We shouldn't treat our faith as being so fragile that it cannot come to terms with mistakes which its adherents might make, despite their best and sincerest motives. And I think this highlights an important point. None of the mistakes that might have been made were made with any malicious intent or ulterior motive. They were all a reflection of people's deepest and sincerest desire to serve the faith as best they could. But our imperfect understanding, even with the best motives, can lead us to make mistakes. And there's nothing wrong with us now having the strength to now learn from these mistakes. Now, before I go any deeper in today's theme, I'd like to first explore this idea of coming to terms with our mistakes. I think for many, perhaps most, the mere acknowledgement that mistakes were made is the extent of their engagement with this issue. They often say, we made mistakes, we've acknowledged it, we've moved on. What's the issue? I think many would rather ignore our mistakes, sweep them under a rug and move on. But this misses the point entirely. In preparing for today's episode, I was talking to a friend about this, and I was truly surprised to see how agitated he became at the subject. He turned to me and said, when I meet people who complain about the past, I say to them, if I get a counselor on his hands and knees begging you for forgiveness, can you move on? Now, his view is clearly extreme, and it's not a reflection of what most of us feel, but it highlights a misunderstanding. Confronting mistakes is not about confessions. It's not about judgment. It's not about criticism. It's not about demanding an apology. It's about learning. It's about reflection. It's about making sure we don't continue to make the same mistakes again going forward. So we need to find a way of learning from our mistakes without being threatened by them. And my hope is that today we can explore just a few of these to better understand. Baha'u'llah prescribes a few practices for our daily lives. For example, we should pray daily, we should study the holy writings and meditate on them. And one of these cardinal practices is the practice of bringing ourselves to account each day. In the hidden words, Baha'u'llah writes, O son of being, bring thyself to account each day, ere thou art summoned to a reckoning, for death unheralded shall come upon thee, and thou shalt be called to give account for thy deeds. Now, what does Baha'u'llah mean when he tells us to bring ourselves to account each day. Does that mean that we should only look at our victories for the day? Well, I believe that Baha'u'llah is telling us that we should reflect on the day, 
Think about what we did right, but also what we did wrong. And where we erred, I think we should commit to doing it differently tomorrow. Now, think about it. This is a big deal. It's a cardinal foundation for our entire belief. It's a critical part of our path to cultivating our spirituality. So this principle of reflection is a sacred Baha'i principle. Similarly, we know that at the core of community building and at the core of cultivating a culture of learning is a need for reflection. But what does that mean? Is it just to focus on our victories? Surely, reflection is about both exploring what went right and what we could do better. So at the outset, let's be clear about this. There is nothing wrong with coming to terms with our mistakes. In fact, it's the Baha'i way. But clearly, there is a style of reflection that we also need to be sensitive to. We don't want this kind of reflection to be an invitation for backbiting, for judgment, for criticism, or for disempowerment. This is why I think the Universal House of Justice highlights two key virtues essential to moving past our mistakes, humility and detachment. We should reflect on these qualities. Why humility? For me, humility is about recognizing our limitations. Let's not pretend we're perfect. Detachment. Let's look to the mistakes by disentangling them from ourselves. It's not about whether we were right or wrong. It's about fresh and independent investigation of the issues in light of experience and guidance. So to be clear, I believe we do have license to grapple with our mistakes, but we need to be careful to not make it a disunifying experience. That doesn't mean sweeping the issues under the rug, but it also means being sensitive to the manner in which we raise it. Here, I'm reminded of the example of Abdu'l-Bahá. Abdu'l-Bahá was always sensitive to the capacity of the recipient of his advice. He always interacted with people, gently caring for their soul to help them see a new truth. For example, some of the early Baha'is in the United States didn't understand the principle of the equality of men and women. And in Chicago, for example, the believers there decided that only men could be elected to their local spiritual assembly. Now, clearly this was a mistake. I mean, there's no question about that. And clearly that mistake had consequences. Capable believers, primarily women, were hurt. So how did Abdu'l-Bahá respond? I mean, he could have written them a nasty note and chastised them. But instead, he appointed Corrine True, a woman, to lead the Temple Project. The Temple Project, which was the most important project for the Chicago community. He corrected their behavior by example, and soon the believers got the point and adjusted their practice. Likewise, Baha'u'llah tells us that in helping others understand a truth, it is critical that we converse in a spirit of extreme kindliness and goodwill and not position ourselves as superior or possessed of greater endowment. And I think there's one more point here. This kind of reflection works best when you're reflecting about the mistakes you made and not the mistakes that others made. And at the end of the day, you have the power to change yourself, but you have very limited power in changing others. And at a collective level, let's focus on what we could do better in our neighborhoods, in our communities. Let's reflect 
with a purpose to do better tomorrow. So let's be open to reflection, but with a kind heart. And let's be open to exploring what mistakes we might have made, but do this so we can improve going forward. So in our last episode, we focused on four key achievements of the past 25 years. So today in this episode, we'll explore four key mistakes that I believe were common among many communities. So fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> Mistake number one, with the new focus on community building, the Universal House of Justice encouraged communities to have clear focus around core priorities associated with the plans and to not be distracted in this journey by other community activities. This kind of focus was not something the Baha'i community had ever really encountered. This idea of this kind of focus was a new construct. Now, we should appreciate that developing this capacity to focus was one of the greatest achievements of the past plans. A community's resources are inherently finite, and the ability to focus is a strength. But in coming to terms with the new construct, many communities made it the almost exclusive limit to Baha'i community life, which we now know was a clear mistake. So we reduced community life to these four core activities. We now know that this was a mistake because we have the benefit of the guidance of the Universal House of Justice, which clarifies this. For example, the Universal House of Justice says, to call upon the Baha'i world to focus its energies on a certain set of activities at a particular stage in the unfoldment of the divine plan does not in any way diminish the importance of other endeavors. So community life should have never been reduced to just four activities alone. Of all of the mistakes made during this period, I personally believe that this was the most consequential. People who had been hosting firesides for many decades, for example, felt pressured in many cases to stop hosting these firesides. Numerous Baha'i summer schools around the world came to a screeching halt. Artistic expression, at least, the kind that requires more systematic organization came to a virtual standstill. Remember that amazing art scene I talked about in Perth in our last episode? It died. External affairs relationships that had taken decades to establish were suddenly relegated. Now the assumption in many communities was that the energy that was going into such initiatives could be redirected into these core activities. But in many cases, such energy simply dissipated, particularly as many of those driving such initiatives simply withdrew from more active participation in community life. And many of these were among our most capable believers. Fortunately, today I think it's rare to see this kind of exclusive focus on core activities alone. But at the same time, in some communities, I think non-core activities are simply tolerated rather than given their due regard. Personally, I don't believe that this approach is consistent with the guidance we're receiving from the Baha'i World Center. The Universal House of Justice tells us, this sense of focus has to accommodate many lines of action, all of which must advance without being in competition. This calls for an expanded vision, a nuanced understanding of coexisting imperatives added flexibility, and heightened institutional collaboration. 
And this will only get more important as we go forward into society building initiatives. So this is the first and perhaps the most consequential mistake we need to address. Mistaking focus for the relegation of all other aspects of Baha'i community life. Both have to find their balance. Okay, mistake number two. There's no question that many communities tackled the plans with incredibly high levels of confidence. And clearly, that's a strength. But as we acknowledged earlier, we were navigating an uncharted terrain. We didn't understand the new plans completely. So sometimes that confidence was misplaced and often it got translated into rigid patterns of behavior. So for example, imagine a believer that hadn't completed a particular book, for example, prescribed as part of a sequence. Now, rather than allow that believer to participate in that course, they'd be told that they needed to go back and complete the books in their proper sequence. And they were denied the ability to participate in the book they wanted to do until they had gone back and completed their books in the proper sequence. Now, think about it. What happens in this scenario? All right, maybe the believer goes back and follows the prescribed sequence, or maybe he or she simply withdraws and doesn't do the book at all. Now, I've seen plenty of that happening. Has this rigidity really served its purpose? In fact, in many communities, attention to technicalities overshadowed the kind of inspiration that should have motivated believers to participate more actively in the plans. People were often completing books out of obedience with no understanding of the bigger picture, simply ticking off boxes to show their compliance with no understanding of what this was all really about. I don't want to paint the wrong picture here. Just as this kind of rigidity was a problem, the resistance to any systematic approach to community building was equally problematic. Curricula was developed for a purpose, a purpose which proved critical in winning the victories of the plan. Now, the Universal House of Justice cautions against creating a dichotomy between rigid requirements on the one hand and limitless personal preferences on the other. Clearly, balance is needed. But as you reflect on the past, ask yourself whether such rigidity is warranted going forward. All right, mistake number three. Another sacred principle of our faith is the principle of universal participation. We explored this theme in episode three, where we explored the art of collectively bringing vision to fruition. And here we explored the idea that our community's capacity, that capacity was a function of our action times our unity. Remember, that was my Einsteinian equation, C equals AU squared. <laughs> Now on one level, our community participation in the plans of the past 25 years is truly without precedent. I can't think of any other period in the history of our faith where we saw such widespread action around specific initiatives within our global community. And for many, there was a hunger and enthusiasm for action, a desire to build the new pyramid as fast as possible. Again, probably without precedent. But this rush to mobilize often came at a cost. 
and that cost was a certain callousness to the experience of our fellow believers. It was like we said, the train is leaving, and you're either on that train or you're not. And for those who couldn't get on the train, we ignored them entirely and moved on with no regard for their spiritual journeys. Again, some of this grew out of the erroneous interpretation of that distraction principle I talked about earlier, but the result in many communities became two clear and distinct cohorts in the community, those deeply engaged and those only marginally engaged or disengaged altogether, and the marginalized were left to fend for themselves. This mistake manifests itself in different ways. For example, in our last episode, we celebrated the incredible achievements of our youth who are now more deeply woven into the fabric of our community life than ever before. By the same token, however, I think it's important for us to study the circumstances around our youth more systematically. Clearly, you see two cohorts, one engaged and the other not. And while the victories of our youth are unprecedented, I think the scale of youth who disengaged is also unprecedented. What we have failed to understand in communities, I believe, is how youth need other activities beyond the core activities to act as tributaries attracting them to community life. While it's true they are better woven into the fabric of our main activities, they still need to come together as cohorts of young people with the dynamic and energy of youth and not simply be limited to the larger community. And again, I'm shocked by our callousness here. We're prepared to sacrifice generations of our youth, only nurturing those who engaged with no regard for our lost generations. By the same token, I believe there was also a certain callousness to those who weren't young. Cluster campaigns often focused exclusively on the contributions of our youth. And while this is highly commendable, what role was there for other believers? Here, they were often expected to simply support the youth. Now, that can't be right either. Clearly, all members of our community should be able to find space to contribute in substantive ways. Now, these are all just examples. My broader theme here is this. Don't allow your desire to see quick results cloud what is surely a sacred principle for us, the principle of universal participation. And don't sit by callously with no regard for the journey of those less engaged. Every soul matters. Okay, now we come to our fourth and final mistake, at least for this episode. Remember, it's the culture of learning that forms the center of our community building process. The Universal House of Justice clarifies. They say, the Baha'i community has adopted a mode of operation characterized by action, reflection, consultation, and study. Study which involves not only constant reference to the writings of the faith, but also the scientific analysis of patterns unfolding. So action, reflection, consultation, and study, and more specifically, the kind of study that includes scientific analysis of the patterns unfolding. 
Now, let me ask you, what does scientific analysis look like? What is scientific analysis? Now, I believe this is a clear reference to the kind of scientific method that emerged in the 17th century in the Age of Enlightenment. It has clear and distinguishing features. One, it's based on empirical evidence and not opinion. Two, it's falsifiable. That means you have to be able to get negative results and not just positive ones. Three, we form hypotheses to test our research questions, often in ways which are designed to isolate specific variables so we can understand their effects. Four, we experiment. Five, our experiments are replicable. Six, we can objectively analyze our results. Now, these are just some of the main features of a scientific approach. But if I'm being honest, this is not the type of approach I've seen at work in the communities I've come in contact with. All too often, I think, we try to cook the books. <laughs> I think part of the problem is that we don't understand what the purpose of a scientific approach really is. It's to discover truth. All too often, the problem for many of our communities is that we treat this data as being motivational in character. We avoid bad news because we fear it may be demotivating. But let's be absolutely clear about this. Scientific method doesn't work at any level if it can't handle bad news. The minute you do this, you have extinguished the very power of scientific method. A scientific approach must be falsifiable. It's central to the very conception of science. You can't go in with the results predetermined. There has to be a genuine journey of discovery. You follow the breadcrumbs and the path to truth. So when we hear about an initiative that's worked somewhere else, it's only natural that we want to see those results in our community. But we need the humility to admit that we don't know which approach will work best in our particular cultural milieu. So we experiment. And this is the concept of replicability. Maybe we get similar results, maybe we don't. But we need to be open to allowing the evidence to answer that question. We don't paint the data to suit. Now, I'm sure where people cook the books, they do this with good motive. But in so doing, we cloud our capacity to truly learn from our encounters. And this means we slow the pace of progress. Now, I appreciate that bad news might appear demotivating, but it's actually quite the opposite. Ignoring the evidence is demotivating because it means that our community participants in such initiatives will ultimately have less fulfilling experiences. They'll see less success, and that will be far less motivating for them in the long run. So let's commit anew to an approach more in line with the guidance we're receiving from the Universal House of Justice, an approach better grounded in science and not geared in trying to get the outcomes we want. Now, I know that for some of you today, today's episode was a hard journey. I know for others, it was probably liberating. 
And for many of you, perhaps most of you, it's all very confusing and you're wondering, what's this discussion all really about? <laughs> but none of this should overshadow the great achievements of the past 25 years. Today, I focused on four key mistakes I believe we made, and, and you might think of others. My point was simply to help get you reflecting on what those mistakes might have been. The four mistakes that I focused on were, one, not allowing our focus to overshadow other important parts of community life. Two, not being rigid in the manner in which we pursue the plans. Three, approaching our initiatives with a view towards universal participation with regard to the needs of all. And finally, four, adopting a more scientific approach to our reflection and study. I believe these will all be important principles for us moving forward. Now I have two final thoughts I'd like to leave you with. First, while it's only natural that we'll make mistakes along the way, making such mistakes should not be our goal. <laughs> we still want to minimize our mistakes because after all, mistakes have consequences. So while change comes with its own risk of mistakes, we should still try to minimize them. And there are approaches which are better or worse at helping us navigate through uncharted terrains. Let me give you an example here. When the new focus on neighborhoods came about, Baha'i communities everywhere had to grapple with this change. Many community members were comfortable with the way things were. It was hard for them to embrace change and one of those changes that was really hard was this idea of having feasts at the neighborhood level, for example. Now, many communities around the world implemented this change immediately, even if, in some cases, this resulted in a certain level of alienation within pockets of their community membership. But I'd like to tell you the story of one community and how they responded, because I think it sets the standard. The local spiritual assembly there decided to start with only one feast per quarter at the neighborhood level. In other words, they phased the change in. And more importantly, the members of the assembly made a truly exceptional effort to make sure that those neighborhood feasts were all amazing experiences. That's the best part of this story. They scaffolded for success. As the community came to appreciate neighborhood feasts, it became a lot easier for them to gradually manage the transition. Personally, I was so impressed by this assembly's approach. I think we can learn a lot from it. So being sensitive and aware is key to navigating to minimize our mistakes. By way of contrast, when we're callous to the spiritual journeys of our fellow believers, well, that's a recipe for making mistakes. Okay, now my final thought. I know that many of you listening today bear your own scars from the mistakes that were made along the way. God knows I have my scars too. We all do. It's my hope that in sharing today's episode, you can find some comfort in being heard. Study the messages of the Universal House of Justice. There are references which clarify some of the mistakes that have been made. This should give you confidence moving forward. But we're at a new juncture now. Increasingly, the society around us 
will need us. This much is clear. And so I'm making a personal invitation, a plea really. Look beyond whatever the mistakes were. Look beyond the hurt. Engage anew. Your faith needs you. Your society needs you. Re-engage and join with us as we seek to better apply the teachings to the societies around us. <laughs> Whew, that was a tough episode. Thank you for your forbearance and for your patience. And please forgive me if I offended you today in any way. And if all of this is new to you, don't let it discourage you. Today, we have to do a little spring cleaning. We have nothing to hide here. We're being open, honest, and authentic in our path. I hope you'll appreciate that we really are all part of a spiritual workshop, working together to discover our better selves. So thank you for joining the conversation for social transformation. And join us again next time when we explore our history of discourse and social action. It's an exciting episode you won't want to miss. I look forward to joining you next time on Society Builders. Society Builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. There's a crisis facing humanity. People suffer from a lack of unity. It's time for a better path to a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society Builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society Builders. So engage with your local communities and explore the exciting possibilities. We can elevate the atmosphere in which we move. The paradigm is shifting. It's so very uplifting. It's a new beat, a new song, a brand new groove. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builder. For social transformation, society builders. The Baha'i faith has a lot to say, helping people discover a better way with discourse and social action framed by unity. Now the time has come to lift the game and apply the teachings of the greatest name and rise to meet the glory of our destiny. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders.